My goodness, Dave. The Russo-Japanese War. Quite a... Quite a quite a story. It's like a, a real upset victory in the sense of like, you know, nobody thought a Japanese, I mean, an Asian power could beat a European power. But Russia's not quite a European power, and Japan is kind of an exception in Asia at this time. So, <laughs> well, according a, to scientific racism, yeah, <laughs> it's a bit of it's a bit of cheating to call this Asia beating Europe, but. But here we are. Uh, we got to set up some context. Uh, we're doing a lot of Russia, right? Because the because the, Russo Japanese War flows right into uh, the revolution, revolution of nineteen oh five. But we thought we'd start with a, a snapshot of Russia around the turn of the century, as we've done with uh, Britain and France. So I used uh, an article by uh, Hugh Seaton Watson, in which he describes Russia as a developing country and he goes back all the way to Peter the Great and uh, the process of selective forced modernization so Russia has has long wanted to modernize to industrialize and especially to catch up to Western Europe mostly in terms of military power and uh, to acquire a modern army and navy that's what Peter was after. He was smart enough to know that that would also require <clears throat> a more modern system of administration, uh, competent governors to run the provinces, uh, trained generals, an imperial bureaucracy, uh, mines, and, uh, and schools. So he wants all of these things. So in that sense, Seton Watson compares him to other modernizers like Muhammad Ali of Egypt, and uh, the Meiji Restoration in Japan. So Seton Watson, uh, Oxford guy, <coughs> yeah, uh, died in 1984, born in 1916. And uh, according to, uh, again, this highly reputable source called Wikipedia, uh, <laughs> it says that he exercised a major influence over British and American understandings of Russia during the Cold War. He was a professor at University of London, so yeah, fine, fine imperial pedigree. This uh, this uh, young Hugh Seaton Watson. <clears throat> yeah, so his his opinions on Russia are of course colored by uh, the re- you know the revolution and the Cold War and World War II and all, all of that stuff. So yeah, read with caution, but it doesn't mean that his uh, picture oh of Russia before the revolution no. is is incorrect. No in fact, sources I find are some of his insights interesting. <laughs> For definitely, I I will be introducing you to uh, all kinds of sources with all kinds of biases. Believe me. <laughs> so. oh, yeah. I'm looking forward to some of them. <laughs> so he he says that Peter was a despot. He wants all of these things, all of this modernization, but without changing the principles of government in Russia, and that is absolutism. So in that sense, it's interesting to compare to, say, modern China uh, trying to uh, acquire capitalism without democracy, which many in the West thought was impossible and this would lead to, you know, the middle class making demands that the government could not meet and, you know, all of this stuff. But in Russia's case, uh, absolutism must remain, and then we'll try to modernize. 
it was difficult for Peter the Great. It's going to be even more difficult for his successors, who were all more conservative and had less imagination than he did. So the, the biggest fact you need to know about Russia at the turn of the century is that 90% of the people were peasants. It's, it's still a rural agricultural uh, empire. And until 1861, a key date in their, their history, more than half of these peasants had been serfs. So tied to the land, unable to move. Uh, but by the emancipation statutes of 1861, they got their personal freedom and they became landowners. But, and this is a, a huge but, they were required to make annual payments to the government as compensation for the former serf owners who had surrendered the land. So we're ending slavery, but the cost of doing so and compensation for the owners is going to come from the former slaves. And the fees were uh, excessively high because they were based on a, a ridiculously high valuation of the land. And these annual payments continued for 49 years until 1910. In the meantime, the plots of land that were given to the peasants were smaller than the plots that they had cultivated as serfs. So you've got less land and basically higher taxes. There, there were efforts to help them out. There was a peasants land bank established in 1883, uh, providing small loans to purchase land. <laughs> and right. if you look at the, like the large statistic, by 1905, peasants owned two-thirds of the land in Russia and aristocrats down to one-fifth. And if that one-fifth seems small, it was still large enough to really annoy the peasants. <laughs> this is one of their major grievances, is that the landowners still control so much property. So what's the other, th I mean, okay, so one-fifth, so there's still a good one-sixth or so unaccounted for. Is that the church and... Uh, yes, the, and yeah. uh, and the crown, I think, might be separate. And okay. some of the ownership was uh, corporate, believe it or not. Right. Oh, yeah. No, I, I'll tell you about Baku. Um, yeah. In, <laughs> which is basically like a Rockefeller town. Yeah. Uh, at this time. Uh, as it not like, uh, this is not an analogy. It's literally Rockefeller <laughs> that owns Baku. <laughs> In Georgia. So meanwhile, the, the uh, agriculture, peasant ag agriculture, remained uh, backward and inefficient. I mean, these are Seton Watson's terms, and they are probably no longer considered politically correct. But let's just say they're lagging behind in modern agricultural techniques. Uh, which, means equipment. which means, Sorry. you know, per unit of land, they're not producing as much food as, oh, gosh, they, no. as it happens in the West. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So the efi efficiency and, and the yields will suffer. They're, they're using uh, fairly primitive tools and equipment. You can still see photographs of, you know, a group of women pulling a plow because they don't have enough horses or, or oxen and, and certainly not mechanization. That's a long way away. And all of this, uh, all of these problems are aggravated by the system of communal tenure. How is land distributed? How is it redistributed? Uh, 
and it's all based on the size of your household. So if you have a bigger family, you get more land. And it's the authorities in the commune, so like the village elders or, or uh, the community board, they decide who gets what land, and they can reallocate it. They also decide on the crop rotation and collect the taxes, you know, all of which restricts the freedom of the peasants. And I mean, there's one way to increase the family wealth, and that's to have a smaller family. But then you get less land and probably poorer land because that bigger family needs. And if you have put a lot of effort into improving your plot of land, only to have it reallocated. So you see all of these barriers to incentives. In fact, they're, they're disincentives for peasants who want to uh, improve their techniques or, you know, improve the yield on their lands. There's still a debate about how these uh, communes functioned. They were controversial at the time. So the ruling class uh, looked at this as, you know, is it paternalism or is it capitalism? And for revolutionaries, is this populism or is this socialism or Marxism? You know, the idea of communal ownership of the land may sound good in practice though <clears throat> it it really killed growth and then you had the problem of rural overpopulation the the russian population was heavily concentrated in uh, western russia and you could have solved poverty and unemployment by making agricultural improvements or or by resettling some of these people on unused lands uh, in other places, yeah, or yeah, so, or by creating new jobs, right? If you if you yeah. expand your industrial infrastructure, there's all these new jobs for people. It's really interesting because there's like a there's like a there's like a Malthusian idea of overpopulation, which is just like you have too many people and they eat too much, and and that you know causes collapse, which is this kind of linear model. But there's also a there's a kind of a Marxist idea of you know, oh, it's not, they don't use the same term, but it's like overpopulation relative to the means of production. So like, because you're producing at this low level, um, you have, uh, you know, you have more people that your consumption under, you could also think of it as under consumption, like any given worker is, does not have enough. So how you solve that is exactly like you say, like you need to go up to a higher level of agricultural production. And, um, and there's an argument to be made that rising population spurs innovation. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you have to come up with a solution for this and let's go. Yeah. So it's, so not, like a, are, it's, sorry. it's not like a doom and gloom overpopulation. Exactly. No. Yeah. yeah. No, a lot of the great advances in human history have come from population pressure. So your choices are agricultural improvement, resettlement, or new jobs in industry. And the Russian government decided to go with the second and third option. So they developed industry. And between the years 1896 and 1905, a million peasants moved to Siberia. Yeah, I mean, this is super interesting, right? Because Russia is so big mm -hmm. that... Um, people can pick up lands in these like Eastern parts of the Russian empire. Whereas people from Sweden or Germany or whatever are going to America. 
at this time, right? It's It's the exact same time where people from Western Europe are all going to America and Russia is kind of sending people out to these more, uh, you know, less, less densely populated parts of the of their empire. Yeah, and generally along the railroad line which they're building to connect with their far eastern ports, which connects with their far eastern Im- imperial colonial ambitions. Yeah. So you're putting people along this line of communication. Also, I suppose a lot of Russians are going to, to America too. <laughs> uh, Not a some lot. Some are allowed to go, yeah. yeah. The Dukovors. And pacifists yeah yeah uh the point is here though that there was very little of option one which is mm-hmm. agricultural improvement and that's going to hurt their their growth the government wants industrialization for military purposes and the peasants are just going to have to bear the expense uh, right. i guess the real the real problem isn't just that peasants are heavily taxed it's that the proceeds of those taxes weren't plowed back into agriculture, right. which is, uh, interestingly enough, exactly what the Japanese did between 1880 and 1910. And the result was that their agricultural output more than doubled. Yeah, so you build, you're kind, they're kind of doing this at the same time as they're industrializing and it's all multiplying and it's going really well for them. Uh, but Russia's not following no. that. Russian agricultural output in the same period does not increase by anywhere near that rate. So overpopulation and government neglect of agriculture made the peasants miserable. Just just to subsist, many of them had to rent additional land from landlords uh, to supplement the, the inadequate yields from their, their own plot of land. So they're angry about high rents but they're also angry about the bailiffs and, and the gendarmes, you know, the, the police in the rural areas. So the, yeah. the peasants are basically interested in lower rents and the breakup and redistribution of those noble estates. There's also some interesting stuff. I read a book uh, about um, forestry in Russia around this time. Mostly oh. it's like post-revolution, uh, but... It's called Song of the Forest, uh, Russian Forestry and Stalinist Environmentalism, 1905 to 1953. <laughs> uh, okay. But it's it's uh, some of the stuff from this period and like pre this period, it, it's 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 like there's a lot of German influence, right? Because Germans are the big forestry, uh, you know, brain trust. But then there's like a whole debate about like, should Russia find their own way to, to you know, in, in forestry as in lots of other fields. But then um, there's also this thing of, there's also this thing that happens everywhere, uh, which is peasants using the forest for, you know, kind of like so-called free products, right? Like just, you know, get some firewood, you gather mushrooms, you do all those kinds of things that peasants do in the forest. And the state is kind of taking that over and denying people these traditional forest rights. So there's a whole, there's a whole battle over like traditional forestry and traditional forest rights. And um, one of the arguments is analogous to agriculture, which is like our forestry is also backward and we're not getting as much out of the forests as we need to. Um, same as with agriculture. So, right. 
and forests and you know this may seem like a small thing but like forests in russia are huge right like it's like it's covering a huge amount of the land right um, yeah but as you say supporting the family income yeah. or the family diet yeah and you're going to take that away well meanwhile there was an industrial boom in the 1870s it came directly from the compensation money the aristocrats had been given all of this cash and they couldn't buy land. So they invested in industry. The Crimean War, which we uh, described in an, an earlier series, uh, really highlighted the, neo, the, the, uh, the need for railways. There was a Russian army that was marching to the Crimea to rescue, to break the siege of Sevastopol, and they didn't get there. They, they literally could not march across their own country because of supply problems. So they Russia needed railways desperately, and they embarked on a big railway building project. In the 1890s, that also sparked the growth of the uh, metal metallurgical industries in Ukraine based on iron and coal. Petroleum in Baku, as you mentioned. The textile industries in Moscow, St. Petersburg, and Poland all boomed in this period. And the Minister of Finance from 1892 to 1903 was Count Vita, Sergei Vita, W-I-T-T-E. And he... Very Russian-sounding name. Actually, <laughs> yeah. what's the deal? The Ger- there's, there's several people with very German-sounding names. Uh, well, yeah, because Peter the Great invited all these Germans in, and, and mm-hmm. so did Catherine. And they became Russian over generations. Yeah. Kind of, yeah. I see. Catherine the Great was German, remember? Yes, yes. Yeah, and they invited in tons of tons of Germans. So Vita uh, introduced the gold standard and attracted foreign investors. Uh, French loans, which we talked about in the, in the the diplomatic idea, French loans were crucial for Russian industrialization. The French and the Belgians invested in uh, the metal, the iron and and coal industries. The British invested in in oil the Germans in the uh, electrical industry. But Russian capitalists did well too. They had uh, high protective tariffs and very close cooperation with government officials. So the profits were large and and guaranteed, which leads some people to, you know, think that, oh, the government was simply the tool of the capitalists. But the capitalists, you know, paid them back for their guaranteed profits with complete indifference to political issues. So the capitalists who invested there, they, they weren't asking for liberalism. They weren't asking mm-hmm. for, you know, any social change. Just, you know, keep the guaranteed profits and uh, you guys can be autocratic uh, as much as you want. Right. Yeah. I mean, you know, this is very interesting because especially if you followed our series and you you go back all the way to the beginning about the glorious revolution in England or the American Revolution, it's like those are um, exceptional in some ways, right? Where the, the, the capitalists are, um, you know, they create this kind of ruling class where they uh, give a whole bunch of rights to themselves and kind of gradually expand it out to other white people as part of their imperialism. But it's like, you can't exactly map that model onto other countries. So the surprise that Russia developed a little differently 
it may be misplaced, right? Or like, um, you know, it's not always, it's actually more the exception that the, like the Anglo-American countries that industrialized early as part of their imperial, you know, projects that had this so-called democracy, which is whatever, these liberal rights for their, their elites, mm. right? Yeah. Um, the other thing is, you know, the whole characterization by what's his name, Seton Watson, yeah. as as a developing country. This is a really great example of how Russia is like not doesn't fit into any of your uh, categories because, on the one hand, like how do you know a country is a quote unquote developing country? Usually, the best way to tell is like, where's the investment coming from? If the investment is coming from outside the country. That's probably a developing country. If the develop, if the investment is coming from inside the country, it's probably doing just fine. And Russia has both. Russia's just never, you know, it's is it a developing country? Yeah. Is it a you know European country? Yeah. Uh, would would yeah. you consider Canada a developing country back at this time? Uh, well, Canada is just such a seamless part of the British Empire at this oh, time. Oh gosh, no! In that, in the nineteen twenties. The, the Canadian government made a really conscious decision. We want to develop. We mm-hmm. want highways for cars. We want yeah, industries and infrastructure. Yeah. 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 And they accepted American investment. Right. Right. So rather than do it slowly with domestic capital, they said, nah, hell, let's use the American money yeah. and uh, expand quickly. So they yeah. did, which meant that- foreign ownership. <laughs> And the 1800s, you know, all of those Western European countries were also big destinations for British capital, right? Like Sweden, you know, yeah. Denmark, whatever. Like they yeah. were the they were the outlets for uh, British investments. So yeah, I mean, yeah, it's it's de- it's definitely. I would definitely encourage people to see this as a system. But Russia's place in the system is. Yeah, it's it's just hard to pin Russia it's down. More complicated, yeah. Yeah. Well, the government was getting what they wanted. They got industries to increase Russia's military power. Uh, no interference from the capitalists in their absolutist government, and, and they needed the expertise because imperial bureaucrats didn't have the first idea of how to build these industries. So, the way Seton Watson puts it, the capitalist drive for profits was an essential part of the process. But for the for the Russian government, it was a means to imperial greatness, and not just the basic motivation. This is it's so interesting because these are dilemmas uh, that communists in Russia and China have had. Um, you know, the since the 1920s in Russia, we'll get to all of this. You know, the national economic policy, the new economic policy in Russia. It's like. Ha- can you use the capitalists or are they using you, mm-hmm. you know? And it's interesting to see that it, it really does predate communism. It's not actually a communist debate at all. It's just a, it's just a debate about state power and, and economics. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So in, in the process of industrializing, they created a new social class, the, the urban workers. There were some earlier on, but a very small number. But the urban labor force is now rapidly increasing. And if you uh, heard our earlier series and remember the Industrial Revolution in Britain, it's basically the same in Russia, even though it's so much later. The wages were 
horrifically low. The hours of work were excessive. The housing conditions were usually wretched. So Russia's doing all the same things that the British did 120 years earlier. There were some attempts to uh, improve conditions, uh, mild measures by the Minister of Finance, uh, Bunge, N.K. Bunge. He was the uh, predecessor of Vita, and Vita tried too. But any attempts to improve conditions for the workers were somewhat accepted in St. Petersburg, but fiercely opposed in Moscow. Uh, The cities, Seton Watson says you can't call them cities because they had next to no services. Mm. He he calls them rapidly growing urban agglomerations. And this reminds (laughs) me of, you know, Birmingham and Manchester in the early 1800s which were going from, you know, 30,000 people to 400,000 people in the space of 20 years. And they didn't have any, uh, you know, any means of transport in the city. They didn't have sewers. There was no electricity, uh, no rules. Basically, everything goes. And somehow in all of this, the large numbers of, of casually employed manual laborers somehow managed to stay alive by casually employed i mean if you got a job you had no guarantees that you would have that job again tomorrow so you could be fired without cause uh in some in some cases you're you're day laborers so show up in the morning and see if you can find work and that's going to mean your economic situation is precarious now among this group there's a small Uh, but increasing group of regularly employed factory workers. And these people are acquiring skills. They're also acquiring uh, consciousness, a sense of class. So you can start to call these people the working class. But for most of the urban poor, you know, many of whom began life in their rural villages, but have been uprooted and forced to move to the cities. So they're suffering uh, emotional bewilderment, despair. The, the living conditions are just so miserable uh, that their misery made them unfit for action. These are not, you know, the uh, the revolutionary vanguard. Well, first of all, they're they're too ignorant, right? They're they're illiterate and they're not receiving information. I don't even know if they have time to absorb the information. That's that also resembles the British working class at the beginning of their industrial revolution. So if there's going to be action or a revolution, the leadership is going to have to come from outside. Right. And this, you know, we, I don't know if we talk about like mass education in Russia, but that's not like they, again, they want to do the German model, but they're not really doing it. Uh, uh, They don't want to. Oh, okay. Tell me. Well, uh, Peter, the great, realized that I need literate and educated people. Not all of them, but the the upper class. So young Russians were introduced to Western ideas. They're going to read German and French and English stuff. And that's going to help him train his generals and admirals and, and provincial governors. But once you open to foreign ideas, you can't limit it to technological and military matters. L- literature and the arts are going to creep in. 
and with them some social and political ideas. But like, no, um, they're not doing like a, I want to have um, everybody read and write because they make better soldiers. No, that's no. not part of the, that's not part of the debate. No. And, and by the Crimean War in the 1850s, they're going to realize, oh, that's part of our problem, right? Yeah. The British and French are all nationalist and, you know, many of them are literate, whereas our soldiers are completely yeah. illiterate and they don't have any national yeah. feeling. So there's a word that uh, I didn't even realize this. The word intelligentsia is actually a Russian word that came into use in the 1860s. And, and the problem is that you have an educated elite who are separated from, you know, all the rest of the population. And it's not just a, a social gulf, it's an intellectual one. So the educated elite, the intelligentsia, they belong to European culture. Whereas the, you know, the 90% the of the population who are peasants, they don't. You can call them traditional Russia. This is a predicament that's not uh, uniquely Russian. Seton Watton says it appeared in virtually all developing societies. The literate elite become culturally alienated, socially isolated, and politically discontented. Uh, and now I bring you uh, Marcel Liebman. Uh, Belgian Marxist Trotskyist uh, writer um, wrote a book uh, in 1972 um, called, I think, just like the Russian Revolution or something. And he's talking about, um, I think he mostly was in Britain. No, no, I guess he was in Brussels for his career. Um, and... Uh, 1929 to 1986. He died in 1986. But he um, he said this about the intelligentsia, and I'm getting a lot of cr the chronology of 1905 and what the revolutionaries were doing from Liebman. Um, and Liebman says, what united the members of the Russian intelligentsia was not simply or even chiefly the fact that they belonged to a particular economic class, but that all of them were swayed by a powerful ideological current by solidarity born of common resistance and often fed by common oppression. Most of its members were the enlightened sons of state officials and noblemen. So the person he often names uh, here uh, for special consideration, or I guess, or special honor as one of the intelligentsia is uh, Viserion Bielinski. So uh, I guess we'll watch. Who was watch a literary critic. Yeah. And I'll have more to say on literary criticism in, in just a little bit. So, yeah, you, you have this group that are educated enough to realize that uh, absolutism is not doing it for them. And they want some some change. They want political rights. They want some freedoms that, uh, you know, they believe are, are re respected and recognized in other countries. But what's, what's specific to Russia is the government's reaction. So... If you want to bridge the gap, the cultural gap between the elite and the masses, you do this by educating the masses. You create a system of primary schools. Catherine the Great wanted to do this, but the nobles, the aristocrats, basically bullied her out of it. 
So Russia has universities, but they don't have primary schools. So the elite can get educated. They can hire tutors and so on. And they can go, you know, study abroad even. And then they can go to university. But the masses can't even start. Apparently, Tsar Alexander I meant to do this. This is the, uh, the ruler who emancipated the serfs. But he never, he never followed through on it, and the idea simply died on the vine. Right. Um, so a couple of notes. Vissarion Belinsky, uh, I guess he had a short life. He was born in 1811, died at age 36 in 1848. Mm. He died in 1848. Um, so they call him a westernizer. But anyway, uh, also in this period, 1825. So a yeah. lot of revolutionaries look back to December 1825. We didn't talk about this. Yeah, coup, we did. did. We? Okay, okay. So there was a coup attempt. Uh, they called them the Decemberists. Uh, Paul Pestel was the one of the leaders, and they tried to do a coup. 30 officers... 3,000 soldiers. They tried to get the senators to, to not take the oath of allegiance. Um, they were dispersed. Uh, dozens were killed. The conspirators were hanged, including Paul Pestel. So the histor one of the historians, Pokrovsky, said it was a non-revolutionary revolution. <laughs> um, and Liebman said their very failure drove home to their successors that the only way of modernizing Russia was to make a revolutionary revolution. <laughs> That non-revolutionary revolution is a very good description. We we covered yeah. this in our episode on the isms, okay? Um, because these are early Russian yeah. liberals. So when okay. Tsar Alexander died, uh, he had two brothers, Nicholas and Constantine, and these Decembrists, these army officers, they preferred Constantine, thinking that he was more liberal. Nicholas, they knew, was a diehard reactionary conservative. So they did this uprising to get Constantine on the throne. So, I mean, it's not really a revolution. We're just picking a different czar and hoping that he'll be nicer to us. <laughs> That's essentially it. Um, yeah, so back to education. Uh, uprisings like this and the 1830 revolution in France... And if you remember, that sparked a major uprising in Poland. They thought it was, you know, the second coming of Napoleon and they'd be freed from the Russians. These revolutions uh, frightened the Russian rulers and they became afraid of education. Very simply, they thought it would put dangerous ideas into the heads of the peasants. And that's why they had secondary schools and universities for the upper class, but they neglected primary education. Russia had all the resources and training facilities they, they needed to start, but the policy was reactionary. Uh, I've got this little quote from the Minister of Education in 1887. Secondary schools should be rid of children of coachmen, servants, cooks, washerwomen, small shopkeepers, and persons of similar type, whose children should not be brought out of the social environment to which they belong. He did He did leave a possible exception for the unusually gifted. So, uh, no school for you is basically it. And that means that the cultural gap lasted probably about a century longer than it should have. By contrast, within 30 years of the start of the Meiji Restoration, 
1868. Japan had a primary school system that gave uh, four years of instruction to 90% of all boys and girls. Japanese rulers had the same goals as Russian, right? They wanted to modernize, industrialize, but maintain absolutism. But they believed that an educated nation, and as you pointed out, an educated army, were better than keeping their people in ignorance. By contrast... In Russia, they didn't just uh, neglect education; they obstructed it. I have yeah, some and examples I, it's, later. it's interesting. It's interesting too because it's like you can't say that Russian society was more hierarchical or anything than Japanese, because Japanese was uh, also very, um, very. Ca- you know, they had caste. You know, they had peasants that were totally disempowered. They had sure. a, you know the samurai class. You know, and I know all this because I watched uh, The Last Samurai with um, <laughs> Tom Cruise. But, but, um, but it's also, uh, yeah. So they, they, but I guess they were again closer to that German, uh, German model. Um, so Liebman again says, in addition to the motives that drove most intellectuals into opposition, students, meaning university students, because as we mentioned, there are no other students. Right. <laughs> <coughs> were the direct butts of government attempts to regiment education and stifle all forms of independent thought. So they're forming what Liebman calls small, isolated, and hence impotent groups, like Young Russia, formed in 1861, Land and Freedom, Zemlia e Volia, uh, forms in 1862. And these are influenced by Belinsky, the aforementioned Belinsky, Bakunin, who we've heard all about uh, in our discussions of the First International, who clashed with Marx uh, over the question of anarchism versus, uh, you know, organization. And then... um, a guy named Nikolai Chernyshevsky. So Nikolai Chernyshevsky is interesting. He's the author of uh, a novel, 1863 novel called What is to be Done? Um, a name that you, that will, a title that will come up <laughs> again and again. Yeah. Uh, Chernyshevsky's book is about a young lady named Vera. Um, Vera's getting set up to marry someone she doesn't want to marry and she she kind of escapes from that situation and she's trying to um basically live uh, her own life um and she eventually kind of joins this kind of commune and lives this kind of communal life with uh <laughs> with a with a kind of foursome <laughs> another married two married couples uh, and they work together and live together and and uh it this is like inspires a lot of ideas right like feminism you know the idea that women should have the power to choose uh what happens in their own lives uh the idea of worker cooperatives and all these things yeah and and free love do you remember some of the early love some of the early socialists that we talked about in our in our first series yeah it's all this uh promotion of that there's always free love somewhere somewhere in there, yeah. 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 <laughs> now, I, I don't mean to suggest that there was no primary uh, education in Russia. The, uh, the Orthodox Church ran schools, um, but the education that they provided uh, <laughs> described as crude. Uh, at best, you got the three R's, uh, writing, reading, and arithmetic, uh, plus church singing, 
and and sometimes not even that much. Now there was another uh, a group that had a, a hand in education, and these are the Zemstvos. So it's spelled Z E M S T V O S Zemstvos. So these organizations were created in the 1860s. They're local representative councils. They are elected, but uh, it has a really unusual franchise. It's not, you know, one man, one vote. Uh, the franchise is heavily tilted in, in favor of the nobles. So 70% of the council members on the Zemsvo are nobles. There were 19 of these organizations in 1865. Uh, 16 more added in 1876. Interestingly, there are no Zemsfos in Poland or the Baltic states. So these local councils had some very limited powers and a limited budget for basic social services and education. But the government doesn't trust these organizations that far. So the peasants lost their votes in 1890 and didn't get them back until 1906. But that the, the Zemsfos actually became centers of moderate practical liberalism, which is an interesting description. <laughs> okay, all right. I'm not sure what practical liberalism means, but moderate <laughs> liberalism, yeah, I get the idea. Uh, meanwhile, the Minister of the Interior doesn't trust these groups. Their, their policy is that instructions come down from the top. We don't want suggestions from the Zemsfos, right? We don't want change to flow, you know, up from the, the bottom. In fact, if that's the way it's going to happen, it's better that no action be taken at all. So conservative, reactionary, uh, afraid of change. Uh, back to the intellectuals for a moment. They're not only isolated from the mass of the people, but also from the government. Uh, political parties were banned. Uh, the press and, and uh, books were closely censored. Political meetings and strikes were forbidden. They're illegal. So if you can't have a political meeting, you know, how do you exchange ideas? And that's where the in intellectuals found ways to sneak in politics disguised as literary criticism. So there's your, uh, is it? and uh, economic theory. But these, these restrictions on, you know, freedom of thought and freedom of speech, all it did was intensify the hostility of these educated Russians to their government. You can use your education and join the government bureaucracy, but that means you're going to have to, you know, obey and be loyal. And many of these people were unwilling to serve in 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 the autocratic government or in the army, and and they wouldn't shed their, uh, you know, Western ideals. So that means that many of the the brightest, you know, educated Russians were outside the government which they are coming to more and more, you know, despise. And most of these people understand that they can't change the government, you know, just by talking about it. It's going to require revolutionary action. There's no assembly. There's no parliament. So, you know, 
founding a social democratic party is illegal and impossible. So there's a yeah, minority. So that, the whole idea that you're just going to vote socialism in is not, there's no clear path to that happening here. No. And that, that's why a, a small minority are going to become uh, revolutionary conspirators. What's interesting though, is that while the majority stay politically inactive, if they had to choose between the government and the revolutionaries, there's a large number who would rather have the revolution. Seton Watson suggests that most of these revolutionaries had no practical experience of government. They didn't work in the bureaucracy, so I guess that part is true. He says they maintained their theoretical purity. And another author I was reading, uh, Vernadsky, says that this happened because political parties were illegal, so these groups had to be underground. And, and many of their leading members had to go into exile. Yeah. And that's one reason why Russian Jews were prominent in many of these circles of exiles, because they had such <laughs> so little hope of getting into a Russian university. Right. So quite a few Russian Jews went into exile to get an education in Germany, in Switzerland, in France. And then, of <laughs> right. course, we're in contact with these circles of expatriate, well, uh, exiles. Um, yeah, that's fascinating. Um, the, Liebman adds the appeal of anarchism and terrorism in particular. Uh, he says this decision to basically become conspirators uh, was forced upon them, uh, the intellectuals, by the prevailing social conditions. They could not count on the support of the masses. Most peasants were apathetic and totally indifferent to politics. <laughs> that, so, just a, a word on that one. Some of these groups tried to reach the peasants. We're going to oh, recruit yeah, the peasants to, you know, and convert them to our ideas. So you yeah. had these young university students going into peasant of villages yeah. and, and <laughs> I've got a, proselytizing, I've got right? <laughs> yeah. And in some cases, they met with like simple apathy, but yeah. also like c complete lack of understanding. Or what are you talking about? And many times they met with hostility. Yeah, <laughs> they, got they got beat up, they got or they got in. handed over to the local yeah. authorities. Like these guys are coming in here and talking about stuff. Um, <laughs> so that so that didn't work. The working class had not yet come into existence and the bourgeoisie was still far too weak to press political claims of its own. In short, the revolutionaries were forced to do battle not only against the absolutist state, but also against the inertia of its victims. So mm -hmm. there's a split in the Russian revolutionary movement, I guess, uh, between, say, 1860 to 1890. And on the one hand, there are kind of terrorists, and then the other, there's like a kind of progressive education kind of idea. So the terrorists uh, at this time, led by a group called the People's Will, or mm -hmm. Narodnaya Volia, the Narodniks, they're called. And then education, probably people like uh, Peter Lavrov. Uh, there's, I guess you could put Tolstoy in here, right? Like people like that too. Um, so this is considered 1860 to 1890, the populist phase of the struggle. And it's called populist in contrast to the Decembrists. Like the Decembrists thought the officers would, would modernize Russia. Uh, and the populist phase is like, no, it's going to have to be the people taking matters into their own hands. Mm -hmm. um, so they're, 
assassination <laughs> groups, um, lots of assassinations. Uh, there's a terrible famine. They try to assassinate Alexander II in 1866. There's a big famine in 1873-4. There are lots of famines in Russia in this uh, 1800s. Um, and the, after this famine in 1874 is when two, or, two to 3,000 students, Dave, yeah. went down to the countryside as part of this organized campaign to try to like enlighten the peasants and, and win them over. <laughs> um, the peasants just can't stand it. Uh, as you said, they, they come down again in 1875 and, and thousands of them end up in jail. Some of them end up doing two years for, for their for this plan. Um, Liebman says scores of them died in czarist dungeons. Many became insane. Um, there was a trial of 193 of them in 1878. Some of the sentences were so severe that there was huge outrage across Russia. Um, new organization in 1876 called Land and Freedom. Their program is uh, local assemblies. Uh, their plan is also violent revolution. There are clandestine groups. There's a group called the Disorganization Group, which is dedicated to fighting the police agitating within the army attacking landowners and assassinating so there's there's like an armed group um an armed struggle element to the revolution from the 1870s you know include from this 1860s and it's not just assassination but also the idea that the police are gonna infiltrate and you're gonna have to find ways to fight them as a revolutionary organization uh, there's a peaceful group called Cherny Peredil, uh, also Marxist. Cherny uh, Peredil means land re- redistribution, all land to the peasants, and that is led by the important uh, Plekhanov. So Plekhanov is someone we're going to hear a lot more about. 1879 to 1881, there's another wave of terror. Um, Prince Kropotkin, not the anarchist Kropotkin, but no. who, who we'll hear about later. But I guess it must be from that family because anarchist Kropotkin was uh, a nobleman too. Mm-hmm. So um, Kropotkin is the governor of Kharkov, uh, assassinated on February 1879. There's they try to kill the police chief in March. They try to kill the governor of Kiev in April. They stab the chief of police of Arkhangelsk. In uh, May of 1879, and they, of course, kill Tsar Alexander II by bombing his sled in 1881. We've talked about that. Unleashes some of the worst anti-Semitic pogroms and so on after that. Um, The secret police actually end up destroying the Narodniks by 1883. And it's interesting because, like, the secret police, you know... There's always this thing to kind of make fun of secret police, especially Russia, where the revolutionaries seem to escape and get away with all these things. But I don't think of the Okhrana as uh, as Keystone cops, you know? No. no, no. <laughs> In fact, uh, you know, even today, or, you know, there are people reading about, writing about them and they're uh, kind of legendary in terms of their efficiency. Um, they do... Th- tricks that are still used so one of the tricks was they would they would infiltrate these underground organizations they would break them up they would round people up or kill them whatever usually just arrest them take them to jail or exile and they but they would always let a few slip out not spies not people who are working for them but legit like revolutionaries and then they would follow them on to their next projects and their next groups um 
to make sure that they kept a handle. And another thing was the discipline. They had the discipline to let the revolutionaries get away with things like bank robberies or whatever, just to make sure that the revolutionaries would not be on to the fact that the cops were on to them. So as far as like the spy versus spy counter infiltration, you know, this was this was something the czarist police were really good at. And this is the environment where, uh, you know, the Bolsheviks, your Lenin, Stalin, um, these people came up. So they came up fighting against this extremely efficient uh, political police. Um, Ruthless. Yeah. As you say, they're willing to allow undercover secret yeah. agents to carry out assassinations just to gain credibility with the revolutionaries. Yeah. <laughs> More on that later. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so yeah. Uh, so they assassinate Alexander the second. The problem is Alexander the third is worse. Um, yeah. He's worse in every way. Uh, in 1887, a plot to assassinate him is foiled. Um, one of the would be assassins is Alexander Ulyanov, a 19 year old who's basically, you know, goes to the gallows and says, you know, the kind of, I only have regret that I have one life to give away kind of guy. Uh, he's Lenin's older brother. So the future Lenin is the younger brother of one of these assassins. Um, so that's terrorism versus education. Another dilemma is uh, about whether to emulate the West or find our own way in terms of revolution, right? Do we do we try to pass through the same stages that the Western social democrats did? Do we follow this social democratic path of trying to create a big party and have elections? Or do we, um, you know, try to find some other unique Russian way? Um, and the unique Russian way is probably going to involve one of these unique Russian features, which is the fact that the country is still heavily peasant. So revolutionaries are constantly debating what about the peasants, because from Marx's perspective, the peasants are too backward to be part of the revolution. The vanguard is always industrial workers um, from, you know, the Russian revolutionaries are like, can we just apply that to Russia. Maybe we shouldn't. Uh, you know, uh, Stalin is always um, in these debates. Lenin too are are pretty uh, pro peasant. They're like, no, no, we have to involve the peasants. We can't win without the peasants. Trotsky, as we'll see, is less <laughs> less so. Um, uh, and you know, in some ways, maybe it's events are catching up with them because industrialism is growing. The countryside mm -hmm. is uh, emptying, the cities are filling. Um, and the person probably thinking this over the most in terms of Marxist theory is Plekhanov again, who we've mentioned. Um, should we talk, uh, introduce the nationalities question and then we'll, we'll break? Yeah, sounds good. We, we haven't mentioned them much so far, but it's interesting that uh, less than half of the population of Russia were Russian. The empire included Estonians, Latvians, Lithuanians, Finns, Poles, Romanians, Ukrainians, different language, different social and cultural traditions, and their national consciousness is beginning to grow. Before this, you might have considered them just little Russians, but they, they're, you know, gradually considering themselves different. You have Georgians, 
Armenians, uh, many Muslims in the Caucasus and in Turkestan. Yeah, and there's all these conflicts in these periods, right? Like there's like there's all the anti-Semitic uh, Jew, uh, anti-Jew stuff going on. Right. But like in Georgia, there's an Armenian versus Azeri thing. There's yeah. there's particular things in all these uh, still ongoing future republics. Yeah, I was gonna yeah. say. Yeah. Uh, of all these subject nationalities, it's uh, Poland that was the most reluctant, uh, eager to regain their independence and therefore most distrusted by the Russians. There were major uprisings in Poland in 1830, in 1863, and these were always followed by repression. And this is where uh, the government and the Okhrana, uh, I guess, efficient, yes, but they often overdo it. The repression, the, the suppression is excessive and, and excessively brutal. Uh, most of the other nationalities seem to be prepared to be loyal if they're allowed to live as they wish. R Russian rulers have typically been brutal with the nationalities, but discrimination against them wasn't part of the national policy until it changed in the 1880s. So right. the Tsar adopted a policy of Russification. And that means they're going to begin interfering in education and in social uh, institutions. Alexander III, as you mentioned, was not the nicest guy, uh, but his advisor, Pobino Nostev, uh, was a ultra-conservative Russian nationalist and as the Tsar's advisor encouraged him in this policy. The uh, the next Tsar, Nicholas II, kept this guy on. So Seton Watson says half of the population of the empire were needlessly treated as potential enemies and a growing proportion of them were turning into real enemies. Right. Wow. I mean, that that's, <laughs> yeah. That, and, and that actually does um, explain to me why, uh, you know, Lenin, Stalin, Trotsky, why they wrote so much on the so-called national question. Right. It was such a big deal to the, the communists, I guess, the social democrats at this time um, to declare the rights of national minorities to say that, you know, the national minorities have these rights and, and they're against so-called Russian chauvinism. Mm -hmm. uh, and I, it explains why, right? If you're a revolutionary, of course you have to, I, I actually, you know, when you, when you read about this as a leftist and you're just reading these debates, you know, Oh, the national question, this debate goes back to this time. You don't realize the context in which these debates are going on or because of specific events that are happening at the time. And, yeah. Well, considering that Marx was anti nationality and, and said that, you yeah. know, nationalities are all going to disappear. Yeah. Yeah. And, and Lenin was just like, maybe they will, but uh, for now, <laughs> Yeah, for now, we <laughs> the might... only thing we can do as a party is embrace, yeah, the nationalities. Yeah, yeah it's it's fascinating. It's uh, it's I, 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 the when you the more you see about the background um, 
like the way that I understand these things is, is really through these these specific revolutionaries. So the more you understand the background, the more it make all of their decisions make much more sense. Um, right. In context, why they took these positions they did. All right, so we'll stop here uh, and we'll continue to to talk about the. Uh, we're going to go on with Nicholas, uh, the Russo Revolution, and the Russo Japanese War. Mm-hmm.